File 14 of A Treatise of Human Nature by David Hume. Volume 1. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by George Yeager. Book 1. Part 2. Section 5. The same subject continued. If the second part of my system be true, that the idea of space or extension is nothing but the idea of visible or tangible points distributed in a certain order, it follows that we can form no idea of a vacuum or space where there is nothing visible or tangible. This gives rise to three objections which I shall examine together, because the answer I shall give to one is the consequence of that which I shall make use of for the others. First, it may be said that men have disputed for many ages concerning a vacuum and a plenum without being able to bring the affair to a final decision, and philosophers, even at this day, think themselves at liberty to take part on either side as their fancy leads them. But whatever foundation there may be for a controversy concerning the things themselves, it may be pretended that the very dispute is decisive concerning the idea, and that it is impossible men could so long reason about a vacuum, and either refute or defend it, without having a notion of what they refuted or defended. Secondly, if this argument should be contested, the reality, or at least the possibility, of the idea of a vacuum, may be proved by the following reasoning. Every idea is possible, which is a necessary and infallible consequence of such as are possible. Now, though we allow the world to be at present a plenum, we may easily conceive it to be deprived of motion, and this idea will certainly be allowed possible. It must also be allowed possible to conceive the annihilation of any part of matter by the omnipotence of the deity, while the other parts remain at rest. For as every idea that is distinguishable is separable by the imagination, and as every idea that is separable by the imagination may be conceived to be separately existent, it is evident that the existence of one particle of matter no more implies the existence of another than a square figure in one body implies a square figure in every one. This being granted, I now demand what results from the concurrence of these two possible ideas of rest and annihilation and what must we conceive to follow upon the annihilation of all the air and subtle matter in the chamber supposing the walls to remain the same without any motion or alteration there are some metaphysicians who answer that since matter and extension are the same the annihilation of one necessarily implies that of the other and there being now no distance betwixt the walls of the chamber, they touch each other in the same manner as my hand touches the paper, which is immediately before me. But though this answer be very common, I defy these metaphysicians to conceive the matter according to their hypothesis, or imagine the floor and roof, with all the opposite sides of the chamber, to touch each other, 
while they continue in rest and preserve the same position. For how can the two walls, that run from south to north, touch each other, while they touch the opposite ends of two walls, that run from east to west? And how can the floor and roof ever meet, while they are separated by the four walls, that lie in a contrary position? If you change their position, you suppose a motion. If you conceive anything betwixt them, you suppose a new creation but keeping strictly to the two ideas of rest and annihilation it is evident that the idea which results from them is not that of a contact of parts but something else which is concluded to be the idea of a vacuum the third objection carries the matter still farther, and not only asserts that the idea of a vacuum is real and possible, but also necessary and unavoidable. This assertion is founded on the motion we observe in bodies, which it is maintained would be impossible and inconceivable without a vacuum into which one body must move in order to make way for another. I shall not enlarge upon this objection, because it principally belongs to natural philosophy, which lies without our present sphere. In order to answer these objections, we must take the matter pretty deep, and consider the nature and origin of several ideas, lest we dispute without understanding perfectly the subject of the controversy. It is evident the idea of darkness is no positive idea, but merely the negation of light, or, more properly speaking, of colored and visible objects. A man who enjoys his sight receives no other perception from turning his eyes on every side when entirely deprived of light than what is common to him with one born blind, and it is certain such a one has no idea either of light or darkness. The consequence of this is that it is not from the mere removal of visible objects we receive the impression of extension without matter, and that the idea of utter darkness can never be the same with that of vacuum. Suppose, again, a man to be supported in the air, and to be softly conveyed along by some invisible power. It is evident he is sensible of nothing, and never receives the idea of extension, nor indeed any idea, from this invariable motion. Even supposing he moves his limbs to and fro, this cannot convey to him that idea. He feels in that case a certain sensation or impression, the parts of which are successive to each other, and may give him the idea of time but certainly are not disposed in such a manner as is necessary to convey the idea of space or extension. Since then it appears that darkness and motion, with the utter removal of everything visible and tangible, can never give us the idea of extension without matter or of a vacuum, the next question is, whether they can convey this idea when mixed with something visible and tangible. 
it is commonly allowed by philosophers that all bodies which discover themselves to the eye appear as if painted on a plain surface and that their different degrees of remoteness from ourselves are discovered more by reason than by the senses when i hold up my hand before me and spread my fingers they are separated as perfectly by the blue color of the firmament as they could be by any visible object which i could place betwixt them in order therefore to know whether the sight can convey the impression and idea of a vacuum we must suppose that amidst an entire darkness there are luminous bodies presented to us whose light discovers only these bodies themselves without giving us any impression of the surrounding objects we must form a parallel supposition concerning the objects of our feeling it is not proper to suppose a perfect removal of all tangible objects we must allow something to be perceived by the feeling and after an interval and motion of the hand or other organ of sensation another object of the touch to be met with and upon leaving that another and so on as often as we please the question is whether these intervals do not afford us the idea of extension without body to begin with the first case it is evident that when only two luminous bodies appear to the eye we can perceive whether they be conjoined or separate whether they be separated by a great or small distance and if this distance varies we can perceive its increase or diminution with the motion of the bodies but as the distance is not in this case anything colored or visible it may be thought that there is here a vacuum or pure extension not only intelligible to the mind but obvious to the very senses this is our natural and most familiar way of thinking but which we shall learn to correct by a little reflection we may observe that when two bodies present themselves where there was formerly an entire darkness the only change that is discoverable is in the appearance of these two objects and that all the rest continues to be as before a perfect negation of light and of every colored or visible object this is not only true of what may be said to be remote from these bodies but also of the very distance which is interposed betwixt them that being nothing but darkness or the negation of light without parts without composition invariable and indivisible now since this distance causes no perception different from what a blind man receives from his eyes or what is conveyed to us in the darkest night it must partake of the same properties and as blindness and darkness afford us no ideas of extension it is impossible that the dark and undistinguishable distance betwixt two bodies can ever produce that idea the sole difference betwixt an absolute darkness and the appearance of two or more visible luminous objects consists as i said in the objects themselves 
and in the manner they affect our senses. The angles which the rays of light flowing from them form with each other, the motion that is required in the eye in its passage from one to the other, and the different parts of the organs which are affected by them, these produce the only perceptions from which we can judge of the distance but as these perceptions are each of them simple and indivisible they can never give us the idea of extension we may illustrate this by considering the sense of feeling and the imaginary distance or interval interposed betwixt tangible or solid objects i suppose two cases that is that of a man supported in the air and moving his limbs to and fro without meeting anything tangible and that of a man who feeling something tangible leaves it and after a motion of which he is sensible perceives another tangible object and i then ask wherein consists the difference betwixt these two cases no one will make any scruple to affirm that it consists merely in the perceiving those objects and that the sensation which arises from the motion is in both cases the same and as that sensation is not capable of conveying to us an idea of extension when unaccompanied with some other perception it can no more give us that idea when mixed with the impressions of tangible objects since that mixture produces no alteration upon it but though motion and darkness either alone or attended with tangible and visible objects convey no idea of a vacuum or extension without matter yet they are the causes why we falsely imagine we can form such an idea for there is a close relation betwixt that motion and darkness and a real extension or composition of visible and tangible objects first we may observe that two visible objects appearing in the midst of utter darkness affect the senses in the same manner and form the same angle by the rays which flow from them and meet in the eye as if the distance betwixt them were filled with visible objects that give us a true idea of extension the sensation of motion is likewise the same when there is nothing tangible interposed betwixt two bodies as when we feel a compounded body whose different parts are placed beyond each other secondly we find by experience that two bodies which are so placed as to affect the senses in the same manner with two others that have a certain extent of visible objects interposed betwixt them are capable of receiving the same extent without any sensible impulse or penetration and without any change on that angle under which they appear to the senses in like manner where there is one object which we cannot feel after another without an interval and the perceiving of that sensation we call motion in our hand or organ of sensation experience shews us that it is possible the same object may be felt with the same sensation of motion along with the interposed impression of solid and tangible objects attending the sensation 
that is, in other words, an invisible and intangible distance may be converted into a visible and tangible one without any change on the distant objects. Thirdly, we may observe as another relation betwixt these two kinds of distance that they have nearly the same effects on every natural phenomenon. For as all qualities such as heat, cold, light, attraction, etc., diminish in proportion to the distance, there is but little difference observed whether this distance be marked out by compounded and sensible objects, or be known only by the manner in which the distant objects affect the senses. Here, then, are three relations betwixt that distance which conveys the idea of extension, and that other which is not filled with any colored or solid object the distant objects affect the senses in the same manner whether separated by the one distance or the other the second species of distance is found capable of receiving the first and they both equally diminish the force of every quality these relations betwixt the two kinds of distance will afford us an easy reason why the one has so often been taken for the other, and why we imagine we have an idea of extension without the idea of any object either of the sight or feeling. For we may establish it as a general maxim in this science of human nature, that wherever there is a close relation betwixt two ideas, the mind is very apt to mistake them, and in all its discourses and reasonings to use the one for the other. This phenomenon occurs on so many occasions, and is of such consequence, that I cannot forbear stopping a moment to examine its causes. I shall only premise that we must distinguish exactly betwixt the phenomenon itself and the causes which I shall assign for it and must not imagine from any uncertainty in the latter that the former is also uncertain the phenomenon may be real though my explication be chimerical the falsehood of the one is no consequence of that of the other though at the same time we may observe that it is very natural for us to draw such a consequence which is an evident instance of that very principle which I endeavor to explain. When I received the relations of resemblance, contiguity, and causation as principles of union among ideas, without examining into their causes, it was more in prosecution of my first maxim that we must in the end rest contented with experience than for want of something specious and plausible which i might have displayed on that subject it would have been easy to have made an imaginary dissection of the brain and have shewn why upon our conception of any idea the animal spirits run into all the contiguous traces and rouse up the other ideas that are related to it but though i have neglected any advantage which i might have drawn from this topic in explaining the relations of ideas i am afraid i must here have recourse to it in order to account for the mistakes that arise from these relations
I shall therefore observe that as the mind is endowed with a power of exciting any idea it pleases, whenever it dispatches the spirits into that region of the brain in which the idea is placed, these spirits always excite the idea when they run precisely into the proper traces and rummage that cell which belongs to the idea. But as their motion is seldom direct, and naturally turns a little to the one side or the other, for this reason the animal spirits falling into the contiguous traces present other related ideas in lieu of that which the mind desired at first to survey. This change we are not always sensible of but continuing still the same train of thought make use of the related idea which is presented to us and employ it in our reasoning as if it were the same with what we demanded this is the cause of many mistakes and sophisms in philosophy as will naturally be imagined and as it would be easy to shew if there was occasion of the three relations above mentioned, that of resemblance is the most fertile source of error. And indeed, there are few mistakes in reasoning which do not borrow largely from that origin. Resembling ideas are not only related together, but the actions of the mind which we employ in considering them are so little different that we are not able to distinguish them. This last circumstance is of great consequence, and we may in general observe that wherever the actions of the mind in forming any two ideas are the same or resembling, we are very apt to confound these ideas and take the one for the other. Of this we shall see many instances in the progress of this treatise. But though resemblance be the relation which most readily produces a mistake in ideas, yet the others of causation and contiguity may also concur in the same influence. We might produce the figures of poets and orators as sufficient proofs of this, were it as usual as it is reasonable in metaphysical subjects to draw our arguments from that quarter. But lest metaphysicians should esteem this below their dignity, I shall borrow a proof from an observation which may be made on most of their own discourses, that is, that it is usual for men to use words for ideas, and to talk instead of thinking in their reasonings. We use words for ideas because they are commonly so closely connected that the mind easily mistakes them. And this, likewise, is the reason why we substitute the idea of a distance which is not considered either as visible or tangible in the room of extension, which is nothing but a composition of visible or tangible points disposed in a certain order in causing this mistake there concur both the relations of causation and resemblance as the first species of distance is found to be convertible into the second it is in this respect a kind of cause and the similarity of their manner of affecting the senses and diminishing every quality forms the relation of resemblance
after this chain of reasoning and explication of my principles i am now prepared to answer all the objections that have been offered whether derived from metaphysics or mechanics the frequent disputes concerning a vacuum or extension without matter prove not the reality of the idea upon which the dispute turns there being nothing more common than to see men deceive themselves in this particular especially when by means of any close relation there is another idea presented which may be the occasion of their mistake we may make almost the same answer to the second objection derived from the conjunction of the ideas of rest and annihilation when everything is annihilated in the chamber and the walls continue immovable the chamber must be conceived much in the same manner as at present when the air that fills it is not an object of the senses this annihilation leaves to the eye that fictitious distance which is discovered by the different parts of the organ that are affected and by the degrees of light and shade and to the feeling that which consists in a sensation of motion in the hand or other member of the body in vain should we search any farther on whichever side we turn the subject we shall find that these are the only impressions such an object can produce after the supposed annihilation and it has already been remarked that impressions can give rise to no ideas but to such as resemble them since a body interposed betwixt two others may be supposed to be annihilated without producing any change upon such as lie on each hand of it it is easily conceived how it may be created anew and yet produce as little alteration now the motion of a body has much the same effect as its creation the distant bodies are no more affected in the one case than in the other this suffices to satisfy the imagination and proves there is no repugnance in such a motion afterwards experience comes in play to persuade us that two bodies situated in the manner above described have really such a capacity of receiving body betwixt them and that there is no obstacle to the conversion of the invisible and intangible distance into one that is visible and tangible however natural that conversion may seem we cannot be sure it is practicable before we have had experience of it thus i seem to have answered the three objections above mentioned though at the same time i am sensible that few will be satisfied with these answers but will immediately propose new objections and difficulties it will probably be said that my reasoning makes nothing to the matter in hand and that i explain only the manner in which objects affect the senses without endeavouring to account for their real nature and operations though there be nothing visible or tangible interposed betwixt two bodies yet we find by experience that the bodies may be placed in the same manner with regard to the eye and require the same motion of the hand in passing from one to the other as if divided by something visible and tangible 
this invisible and intangible distance is also found by experience to contain a capacity of receiving body or of becoming visible and tangible here is the whole of my system and in no part of it have i endeavoured to explain the cause which separates bodies after this manner and gives them a capacity of receiving others betwixt them without any impulse or penetration i answer this objection by pleading guilty and by confessing that my intention never was to penetrate into the nature of bodies or explain the secret causes of their operations for besides that this belongs not to my present purpose i am afraid that such an enterprise is beyond the reach of human understanding and that we can never pretend to know body otherwise than by those external properties which discover themselves to the senses as to those who attempt anything farther i cannot approve of their ambition till i see in some one instance at least that they have met with success but at present i content myself with knowing perfectly the manner in which objects affect my senses and their connections with each other as far as experience informs me of them this suffices for the conduct of life and this also suffices for my philosophy which pretends only to explain the nature and causes of our perceptions or impressions and ideas footnote four as long as we confine our speculations to the appearances of objects to our senses without entering into disquisitions concerning their real nature and operations we are safe from all difficulties and can never be embarrassed by any question thus if it be asked if the invisible and intangible distance interposed betwixt two objects be something or nothing it is easy to answer that it is something that is a property of the objects which affect the senses after such a particular manner if it be asked whether two objects having such a distance betwixt them touch or not it may be answered that this depends upon the definition of the word touch if objects be said to touch when there is nothing sensible interposed betwixt them these objects touch if objects be said to touch when their images strike contiguous parts of the eye and when the hand feels both objects successively without any interposed motion these objects do not touch the appearances of objects to our senses are all consistent and no difficulties can ever arise but from the obscurity of the terms we make use of if we carry our inquiry beyond the appearances of objects to the senses i am afraid that most of our conclusions will be full of scepticism and uncertainty 
thus if it be asked whether or not the invisible and intangible distance be always full of body or of something that by an improvement of our organs might become visible or tangible i must acknowledge that i find no very decisive arguments on either side though i am inclined to the contrary opinion as being more suitable to vulgar and popular notions if the newtonian philosophy be rightly understood it will be found to mean no more a vacuum is asserted that is bodies are said to be placed after such a manner as to receive bodies betwixt them without impulsion or penetration the real nature of this position of bodies is unknown we are only acquainted with its effects on the senses and its power of receiving body nothing is more suitable to that philosophy than a modest scepticism to a certain degree and a fair confession of ignorance in subjects that exceed all human capacity End of footnote four. i shall conclude this subject of extension with a paradox which will easily be explained from the foregoing reasoning this paradox is that if you are pleased to give to the invisible and intangible distance or in other words to the capacity of becoming a visible and tangible distance the name of a vacuum extension and matter are the same and yet there is a vacuum if you will not give it that name motion is possible in a plenum without any impulse in infinitum without returning in a circle and without penetration but however we may express ourselves we must always confess that we have no idea of any real extension without filling it with sensible objects and conceiving its parts as visible or tangible as to the doctrine that time is nothing but the manner in which some real objects exist we may observe that it is liable to the same objections as the similar doctrine with regard to extension if it be a sufficient proof that we have the idea of a vacuum because we dispute and reason concerning it we must for the same reason have the idea of time without any changeable existence since there is no subject of dispute more frequent and common but that we really have no such idea is certain for whence should it be derived does it arise from an impression of sensation or of reflection pointed out distinctly to us that we may know its nature and qualities but if you cannot point out any such impression you may be certain you are mistaken when you imagine you have any such idea but though it be impossible to shew the impression from which the idea of time without a changeable existence is derived yet we can easily point out those appearances which make us fancy we have that idea for we may observe that there is a continual succession of perceptions in our mind so that the idea of time being for ever present with us when we consider a steadfast object at five o'clock and regard the same at six we are apt to apply to it 
that idea in the same manner as if every moment were distinguished by a different position or an alteration of the object the first and second appearances of the object being compared with the succession of our perceptions seem equally removed as if the object had really changed to which we may add what experience shews us that the object was susceptible of such a number of changes betwixt these appearances as also that the unchangeable or rather fictitious duration has the same effect upon every quality by increasing or diminishing it as that succession which is obvious to the senses from these three relations we are apt to confound our ideas and imagine we can form the idea of a time and duration without any change or succession End of file fourteen.